0: listening to eye on the triangle on
1: wknc 88.1 good evening and thanks for joining us here on the september 14th edition of eye on the triangle here on 88.1 wknc i'm your host john boyer the time is 702 some people are calling it a sign of the end times others little more than the new swine flu and chances are you're probably going to want to listen tonight what am i talking about bed bugs and that's where we begin the show
2: On the Triangles VIP. Talking
3: to people that matter.
1: And we're joined now by two guests from the NCSU Department of Entomology, two researchers specializing in urban entomology Dr. Warren Booth and Rick Santangelo. And first, I wanted to start off by seeing if you could just tell us a little about yourself and your uh, academic background, starting with Warren.
4: Well, uh, yes, my name is Warren Booth. Um, I'm a native of, of Belfast in Northern Ireland. Um, and I moved here in January 2006 after completing my Ph.D. Um, I primarily am a population geneticist or a molecular ecologist, and I use molecular markers to understand how populations are introduced into an area and spread and how populations may be linked um, to each other.
3: I'm Rick Santangelo. I'm a lab manager and researcher here at NC State. Um, My background includes uh, working with urban pests, crop pests, um, arthropods, but... I'm interested in insects that impact people's lives, as we're seeing with bedbugs and cockroaches.
1: So as you said with bedbugs, let's begin with that. It's been front-page news here in Raleigh. The New York Times, I think, has already run 14 or 15 stories so far this summer about bedbugs. It's being called the Summer of the Bedbugs. Uh, A lot of people, especially my age, haven't seen any in their lives. Can we just start out basically by talking about what they are, what they look like?
4: Yeah, bedbugs um, are really one of these misunderstood urban pests. They they were pretty much essentially eradicated in the 1950s, um, and it's only really since the 1990s that they've been resurging. Um, they're small um, hematophagous insects, so they're blood-feeding. Uh, they're part of the family Cymocidae, which also includes tropical bugs, bat bugs, um, and swallow bugs. Um, uh, basically what they do is they, they go through a number of molts, it's six molts, and, until they reach adulthood, and then um, to each stage they require a blood meal. And they're really quite interesting because the females, once they're adult, can lay multiple eggs a day. But this is after a a mating system which is really quite unique and quite grotesque. It's called traumatic insemination. Um, Basically, the males have uh, hypodermic genitalia that they use to pierce the sides of the females and and ejaculate at that point, Um, which is, in itself, it's traumatic because it can lead to the death of the female. And it's also been shown that some males actually use it as a a way of, of, of eliminating competitors. Um, so it 's really quite interesting um, they they spread primarily through through human mediated means uh, they 're like many of the, the commensal um, insects such as uh, German cockroaches um, but they could also spread um, through other methods such as birds or bats that may or mammals that may um, occupy a property with a human um, and that kind of harks back to their through their ancestry where they were considered um, ectoparasites of of mammals that lived in caves with humans. And after the, the humans moved out of these caves, the, the bedbugs followed uh, along with them and evolved into the current state that they are.
1: So I've never really been tempted to feel sorry for the bedbugs, but you talked about the traumatic insemination. Um, maybe we'll come back to that in a second, but first just where do they like to live around the house? I'm sure they like to take up residence in places beside beds, and also how do they uh, travel around the country? Well, John, there's, there's a few places that's very important to check when
3: you're looking for a bed bug infestation. Bed bugs are lazy. They don't want to be too far from their meal ticket, so they want to be close to you. Uh, they want to be able to travel the minimum distance um, to get their blood meal. So as the nomer implies, bed bugs want to be close. They want to be on the bed if they can. Um, checking the corners of the mattress and the mattress seams are very important. So you may not always see the bed bugs themselves. They're about tick-sized. Um, for the adults, um, they're darkish insects. The, in, the immatures can be light colored. Um, when they've taken a blood meal, they'll be red. Um, but checking the corners of the mattress, the mattress seams, the bed frame. If you're traveling, it's very important to check the headboard of the bed because hotels and motels will frequently change their sheets, but they don't—they never change the headboard. If that can be moved from the wall, uh, removing that headboard can be a great place to check and see if a hotel motel room. Has bed bugs, um, but as infestations grow, the bed bugs also spread out from the bed. So while early on may just be on the bed or near the bed, they can then move to places like behind pictures, uh, along the baseboards, carpet seams, end tables. All those areas are possible hiding places for bed bugs.
4: Yeah, yeah. Just to, to add to that, um, bed bugs really are this global pest. They're not something that's restricted just to human dwellings. Um, there has been uh, a number of hypotheses that have been um, suggested of where these come from. Uh, one is that they are resurging from ancestral populations that move to alternative hosts, so they moved into, in this case they moved into poultry farms, is, is the hypothesis and then from there they spread outwards but also bed bugs have been recorded in bat roosts um, and, and anywhere even that, that humans or mammals can be um, if you look at many of the reports nowadays and you can find them, reports of them uh, occupying hotels or human dwellings you can find them in transport such as airplanes, um, any transit. Um, in Northern Ireland, in fact, there was a report um, just last year of uh, infestations on on public transport buses. Um, so really the thing is that anywhere that humans can be, bedbugs are likely to be. So bedbugs do suck the blood of humans, and a lot of
1: times when you hear about creatures like mosquitoes that also do that, you think about the potential for diseases spreading uh, is there any risk of that with bed bugs or other kinds of sanitary concerns that come about with their presence?
4: There are reports um, of mechanical transfer of pathogens, but and that's from a bed bug that is fed on, on a human and then walked over that wound site. Um, but basically any of the studies so far um, have shown that they do not spread any human-born or human-mediated pathogen. Um, and there have, there have been quite a few... Um, uh, pathogens investigated. I think around fifty at the moment, and we're 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 investigating another one at the moment. But there's no evidence that they will um, pass on the um, a pathogen from one from one human to another.
3: I guess I'd like to add, though, that even though we're not seeing disease transmission at this point, the psychological impact of bed bugs is enormous for people who suffer from them. So, uh, you know, the stigma also that goes along with bed bugs, um, and this is partly due to the novelty of the whole, you know, the bed bug pandemic, um, that people think that people who have bed bugs are unclean, and that's not the case. You can very easily pick them up when you're traveling, um, even in town, and once you've got them, they can be very hard to eliminate. And for people who have bed bugs, uh, you, they lose sleep. Um, there's oftentimes the loss of social uh, social networks. Um, I think that's going to change as people become used to the reality that bed bugs are here, they're going to continue being a problem. Um, but, you know, and along with the itching of the bites, different people react very differently to bed bug bites. Um, a good portion of people don't react at all to the bites, um, whereas others will have inflamed rashes, uh, itchy bites that, that will last for a good period of time and may not show up for up to a week after being bitten.
1: So it's still a worthwhile thing to have them eradicated. I know a lot of people have looked into... Different means of getting rid of them. In fact, I was listening to the radio last night and actually heard a commercial now for this new brand that's supposed to remove bed bugs through non-chemical methods. What's the deal with all of this? Well, chem- chemistry right now is is one of our
3: best options for dealing with bed bugs. It's a very difficult problem to deal with on your own, um, and we always recommend to people that they seek uh, professional pest control services to deal with bed bugs. That's oftentimes going to involve spraying, and oftentimes it's going to be very expensive. A $500 price tag uh, for an exterminator treatment, which will be several visits, um, is the norm. There are some non-chemical options out there. Heat treatments um, are one of the things that is growing in popularity. Uh, Basically heating up a dwelling to a critical temperature over 120 degrees Fahrenheit uh, will kill bed bugs, their eggs, and immatures. Um, but that, the price tag, often runs over $1,000 for a visit. So in the future, these may come down in price, but right now it's it's an expensive proposition if you have bed bugs um, and you need, you need to get some professionals in there to catch it because catching those infestations early makes them much easier to deal with, um, makes it much less likely that you're going to need re-return visits.
4: I think to add to that, Um, right now we're seeing many pest control operators that are reporting four or five hundred fold increases in the number of bed bug calls that they go out to. So this really is a major event that's going on, but associated with that eradication is we also need to change the behaviours that we're actually performing ourselves. You know, we go to an airport and it's not uncommon to look around and see four or five people that have brought their pillow from their home with them so that they can sleep more comfortably on a plane. But if that pillow has, if they've got an infestation of bedbugs in their house and there are bed bugs in that pillow, then they've just unintentionally spread those bedbugs to other areas. So as, along with the eradication, there should also be a change in personal behaviors.
1: What is the kind of research you do, and how is that playing into studying and understanding bedbugs? And uh, have you answered any of these
4: questions so far that you've been looking into? Well, at the moment, we're just really you know, at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to bedbug research, As I said earlier, this uh, resurgence has been really going on since the 1990s, but it's only now that it's at such uh, such an extent. Um, We were lucky to uh, receive a number of competitive grants within the last two years to study bed bug um, infestations and population genetics. So basically what we're trying to look at is get an estimate of global genetic diversity, and that will allow us to understand if they've originated in one or more areas and how they've then spread into a new site of infestation, and whether that's into the U.S. or into the U.K. or Europe, um, that's one of the questions. From there, we we then want to look at, once they're infesting an area, um, where are they going from there? Are they spreading within a city? Are they spreading across the nation? Um, and again, molecular markers allow us to answer that question because we use, um, basically it's, it's a form of DNA fingerprinting, where we can DNA fingerprint every single individual, whether it's in an infestation or in a population, uh, and understand how that individual is linked within that infestation and how that infestation is linked to any other infestation within not only a, a building but a city or, or the nation or globally.
3: One of the other areas that we're investigating is also uh, insecticide resistance, so not to come forward with more bad news, um, but the bedbugs we're seeing now are much more resistant to pesticides than they were in the past. So it's much more difficult to kill them, and it's going to require more treatments. So the insects we're looking at that we're field collecting, um, you may not kill them with one spray. They may require multiple sprays before you knock them down.
4: I think to, to add to that, John, there, um, to touch on what, on what Rick said, we, we did a preliminary study of 38 populations um, earlier on this year to look for um, two mutations that occur in a sodium channel. And this is linked to the knockdown resistance um, due to uh, of, of pyrethroids and insecticide. And we found that out of those 38 populations, uh, the majority of them either had one or both mutations. And these mutations are linked to an increase in the resistance to pyrethroid insecticides. And that may be as little as a as a 100-fold resistance, but it's been also reported that it could be as much as a 6,000-fold resistance to common insecticides. And this is widespread across the United States. It is not restricted to one area or another, and we're finding it in, in all of the states that we've looked at so far.
1: Now, I'm sure that bed bugs aren't the only thing being studied, the Department of Entomology's Urban Entomology Research Group. Uh, are there any other insects that you've seen an increase in in recent years? Even things as common as co- cockroaches that people might be familiar with, are we finding new answers about their behavior?
3: Well, we're, we're constantly doing work with cockroaches. In this time of year, a lot of people see more in their homes. Um, and we were just working at Bugfest this past weekend, and a lot of people come forward and they say, ah, I'm seeing these really big, dark cockroaches in my homes. What should I do, what should I do now? Um, and in a lot of cases, that's associated with cooler evenings. Um, so there are a number of cockroach species that are found outdoors here in North Carolina that when you start to get lower night temperatures, they migrate into our homes seeking warmth. They're called smoky brown cockroaches. You'll find them uh, frequently on our porches and decks. Um, They like to forage in our recycle bins, in our trash cans. And if you have poor sealing and and caulking around your screen doors, sliding doors, um, they may inadvertently end up getting in your home. Um, They don't establish well in your home, so that's not something that you're going to need a professional to come in and deal with. Excluding them and sanitation is usually enough to, to get rid of that problem. Um, the other cockroach that is a problem that you see frequently around campus is the German cockroach. Um, it's much smaller, a uh, quarter of an inch um, and it's it's got two dark black stripes on the pronotum. It's usually golden colored. The nymphs can be dark. Um, again, they're very small, but once they're in a home, um, they can establish, they can reproduce, um, and there's something that you're going to want to, again, stay on top of and catch early. So knowing what a German cockroach looks like um, is a good idea, particularly if you're renting a home. That's a problem you may you may pick up with when you move into a place that has had German cockroach problems before.
4: I think to add to that, um, to add to the German cockroach story, this is something that we have been addressing using molecular markers in a similar way to what we've been doing with bed bugs. Um, so we develop and we apply these molecular markers um, In a paper we published recently in the Journal of Medical Entomology, we studied how these infestations and properties are related to each other. And what we're finding is that we might have an infestation in a kitchen and we then might have an infestation in a living room or a bathroom um, or a bedroom in a property. And this is not necessarily one large population, but it can be multiple smaller populations that are linked through a small amount of movement. But what that told us was that the common forms of treatment, which may be treating a bathroom and a kitchen, is not an effective way to eliminate that population. It really requires room by room treatments, and and essentially now it looks like it, it needs to require building level treatments. Once they're in a property, they theoretically can move through any crack or crevice in a wall. Um, so, if two buildings share a wall, um, they can move from one building to another. So, your your property, your your apartment, can be really clean. Um, But if your next-door neighbor has an infestation, theoretically they can move into yours. And, of course, that means that you need to try and cut down on the amount of food you leave lying around and waste you leave lying around. So the cleaner your property is, the less likely they are to move in and actually find something to feed on.
3: Well, I I guess I'd like to say that with German cockroaches, uh, baiting is also a a very uh, attractive option that spraying using less pesticides is, is an effective way. And you can buy some good products um, over-the-counter from hardware stores, um, some grocery stores, um, gel bait that will work very effectively to, to reduce German cockroach populations.
1: But as far as the smoky brown cockroaches go, when one crawls under the door and gets into the apartment and starts skittering around, uh, anything to do at that point, or is it just prevention and wait them out? I, I, I think
3: the, the term mechanical control comes to mind. That would be smashing it with your shoe. Um, yeah, ca- catching them, putting them outside, um, just excluding them. Those really don't typically require sprays, although you know, baiting is a possibility for those. They will eat gel bait, and that will kill them. Um, but again, they're just occasionally getting in. They're usually not a problem inside homes, except that they are when you see them. They're so spooky, and you know, they do scutter, you know, scuttle and run around. And you know, I, I understand.
4: Yeah, another pest that we've been um, looking at in more detail recently is is the odorous house ant. It's this little small black ant that. We find sometimes in our properties, um, very often around the outskirts of our properties, um, they're most easily recognized if you get one and you crush it between your fingers and smell. It's a smell like, um, some people say rotten coconut, some people say it's like Windex, um, but they definitely have a a very um, noticeable odor. Um, And these little things will will actually come in 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 large numbers. They can get into your property and they can feed on uh, any stored foods, mainly sugars and so on. Um, we find them around our property if we put up um, a bird feeder uh, a hummingbird feeder within days these things will find it, and they will they will be feeding on the same thing that the uh, the hummingbirds would be feeding on, and their populations could become very very large um, it 's been thought that they can that they live in small um, natural populations of one queen and, and a handful of workers, but what we 're finding is expansive um, property wide nests that are thousands of queens and hundreds of thousands of workers. Um, so that's just another one of these pests that, that you need to keep an eye on. If they get into your property, it's worthwhile treating. It's very easy to treat.
1: Well, there's that common saying about cockroaches being able to survive nuclear wars. What is the future looking like? And even going back to bed bugs, is this something that we're always going to be worried about as humans?
4: Well, the thing is, bed bugs are here and they're not going away anytime soon. Um, it's it's not a national resurgence; it's a global resurgence, um, which suggests that they're not coming from these. Alternative hosts such as poultry farms. That there's some other mechanism behind why they're here and why they're erupting in, in such large numbers. And of course, that could be due to um, the amount of international and national trans, uh, travel and transit we've got right now. The use of second-hand furniture, which is very common, um, and then obviously resistance to insecticides. So bed bugs aren't going anywhere, and it's it's a matter now that we need to really understand our behaviours when we go into different properties or different uh, hotels and so on. And how we can minimize the risk of, of bringing infestations back into our property, or if you have got them, spreading infestations to other properties.
3: And John, you know, researchers and industry are working very hard right now to find ways to manage bed bugs. Um, you know, with cockroaches, we have some very good tools to deal to deal with roach infestations. Um, for bed bugs, this is a relatively new phenomenon. So we're talking about something that's really developed over the past ten years, and we're work. You know, we're we're working to try and come up with better ways to control bed bugs. Um, through the research we do um, is going to promote understanding of their basic biology and their habits, and hopefully lead to better control measures. Um, because bed bugs aren't something that you can just sort of live with; um, they're going to they're going to grow and they're feeding on us. So it's a problem that's going to be around for the foreseeable future. But we need to come up with some new tools, um, you know, to help people you know, get rid of them, to eradicate them once they've, once they've picked them up?
4: Yeah, there's a couple. If you want to look at the research that we're currently doing, you can go onto the Department of Entomology website at NC State and search for either myself, uh, Dr. Ed Vargo, or Dr. Kobe Schall, and there will be a list of research and publications that are coming from this, this work at the moment. But also if you're traveling and you just want to get an idea, if you, if you want to stay in a hotel um, where there may be infestations, there's a website called um, bedbugregistry.com and this will have a, uh, a national map where you can uh, highlight focus in on a certain area um, or type in a certain address, and that will tell you if infestations have been recorded in that property.
1: Well, that about wraps it up for now. I thank both of you for coming in and sharing your expertise. Dr. Warren Booth and Rick Santangelo from the NC State Department of Entomology, thank you for coming in tonight.
4: Thank you, John. Thank you.
1: I love that quote. They're going to grow, and they're feeding on us. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on 88.1 WKNC. The time is 723. I'm John Boyer. We'll come right back and discuss bedbugs more in a little bit, but we'd like to get your comments and input, too. We're on Twitter, WKNC EOT, or WKNC 88.1. Actually, it's WKNC 88.1. Email public Affairs at WKNC.org. Facebook, Eye on the Triangle, and our new voicemail feedback line, 919 We'll mention that again in a little bit. When Eye on the Triangle continues, we've got Jessica Showers standing by with a weather report, a look at upcoming events around campus, our Wolfpacker of the Week, a very special edition of Sports with lots of great news, Chris's Gardening Minute, and the new restaurant review from Mark. It's all on the way. Go ahead, check under your bed, and then come right back.
0: You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. And
1: We're back here with Jessica Showers from the NCSU Broadcast Meteorology Program to bring us up to speed on the forecast, Jessica.
0: Thank you, John. Yes, it's been very hot out today, if you guys haven't noticed. This afternoon, we reached a high of 95, and right now it's 89 degrees, so it's still pretty toasty out there. And this week is not going to be very different. Uh, Tonight, we're going to see lows in the lower 60s, winds becoming calm overnight. Tomorrow looks to be bright, sunny, and hot, with highs in the lower 90s and light winds similar to today. Partly cloudy skies will continue throughout the day as well. Tomorrow night, lows in the 60s again with light and variable winds. Thursday, we will see highs in the 90s with light wind around 15 miles per hour, and partly cloudy skies will remain throughout the day and into the night. For the Wolfpack game against Cincinnati on Thursday night, we will see temperatures still pretty warm for the start of the game in the mid-70s, but will cool down as the night progresses with the lows in the mid-60s. And now for a look at the tropics, we have Hurricane Igor, still a Category 4 out in the Atlantic, with maximum winds of up to 145 miles per hour. Igor continues a slow trek across the Atlantic in the northwest direction. Igor could become trouble for Bermuda by midday Sunday. Hurricane Julia is following in Hurricane Igor's wake with maximum winds of 85 miles per hour. It's still a Category 1, but Julia is expected to continue to move west and could turn towards the north by Sunday afternoon. Tropical Storm Carl has just been named this afternoon with maximum winds of 40 miles per hour. Carl is predicted to move towards the west, which could spell trouble for parts of southern Mexico as we head into the weekend.
1: Well, thanks for uh, bringing us up to date with that, Jessica. Now I'm going to send it over to our good friend Chris Chaffee, letting us know what's going on around campus this week. Thank you, John.
5: For this week's community calendar, we have a boatload of stuff for you to check out. On Tomorrow uh, tomorrow on Wednesday, September 15th, the Campers Farmers Market at NC State will be held in the Brickyard. Don't miss out on all the exciting products the vendors will be offering right in front of DHL Library from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. On Thursday, September 16th, there will be a study abroad fair from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. in the Tally Ballroom. Come rub elbows with folks who have returned from their study abroad experiences and are eager to share their stories. There will also be faculty advisors who lead these programs in attendance, and they will be able to answer questions. On Friday... September 17th, in the Tally Walnut Room, there will be a workshop called Selling Yourself. The program's purpose is to teach students how to write effective resumes and cover letters. Miss Carol Schroeder and Dr. Woody Coteau will be giving advice on what businesses look for and how to market yourself towards potential employers. Registration is required, and you can do so at http slash colon backslash backslash go.ncsu.edu slash pflevents. On Saturday, September 18th, from 7 to 9 p.m., there will be a Lady Gaga party in the Burgaw Activity Room. what? On September 18th, from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., there will be a Lady Gaga party in the Burgaw Activity Room. Sponsored by the GLBT Community Alliance, the party will have a costume contest, Gaga music and videos, a concert ticket raffle, dancing, and much more. This event is free to all NC State students, faculty, and staff. Now, on Sunday, September 19th, the movie Letters to Julia will be shown in the Witherspoon Cinema starting at 9 p.m. An American girl on vacation in Italy finds an unanswered letter to Juliet, one of thousands of messages left to the fictional lover of Verona's courtyard, which are secretly answered by the secretaries of Juliet. This begins her quest to find the lovers in the letter. Rated PG, running time 105 minutes Student tickets cost $1.50, and the general public, it costs $2.50. Now on Monday, September 20th at 3 p.m. in the Witherspoon Cinema, the Scholars Forum will be hosting news and observer investigative reporters Joe Neff and Mandy Locke, who will be discussing their recently broken story about irregularities at the North Carolina Bureau of Investigation. Already 200 cases have been called into question, at least three of them capital cases where the defendant has already been executed, and it's been less than two months since these... Articles have hit the racks. Admission is free, and this event is
1: open to the public. John, thank you, Chris, for that look at what's going on, and also thank you to Jessica. You can keep up with the activities of the NCSU Broadcast Meteorology Program on Twitter. Follow them, NCSU Weather. Now it's time for a Wolfpacker of the Week. Dr. Shannon Johnson, Wolfpacker of
3: the Week on Eye on the Triangle,
2: a spotlight on those who go above and beyond.
5: Eye on the Triangle's Packer of the Week, Dr. Shannon Johnson, director of the NCSU Women's Center looks back at how the university has changed since her days as an undergraduate and outlines some of the programs that the Women's Center will be hosting this fall.
6: My name is Shannon Johnson, and I'm the director of the NC State University Women's Center. I've been working at NC State University for five years now, and for me, this was coming home. I'm an NC State alumna doing my undergraduate work here at NC State, and I really liked the opportunity to be able to come back to NC State on the administrative side and be able to to make a difference and make the campus even better than it already is through my work at the Women's Center. NC State University has changed a lot since I first came to campus as a first-year student. Um, I'm not going to say when, but the biggest change that I can think of is tuition. Uh, I think it was around $360 a semester when I first came here. Um, It's obviously gone, gone up since then. The campus has grown tremendously, too. Seeing new buildings across campus, the development of Centennial Campus is just amazing to see how that has grown and the relationships and the interactions that the university has with businesses. The number of students continues to grow um, as we get larger and larger as a campus. Probably the main challenge that I face um, as director of the Women's Center is budget-related. Obviously, the economy has taken a downturn in the last few years that's affecting everyone. And so our state-appropriated funds have been cut. We've lost part of a position. And so some of the work that I've been doing has been around fundraising and developing a fundraising plan, reaching out to our alumni, and um, also writing grants. We've written two grants in the Women's Center that's allowed us to be able to hire two Full time staff and a graduate student as well, and expanding the work that we're doing around interpersonal violence issues. The Women's Center is located in Tally Student Center on the third floor, and we are excited about the renovations that are going to be happening with the Tally Student Center over the next few years. We're, of course, busting at the seams like everyone else in Tally, and so we'll have a additional space with that. The layout of the Student Center will be fabulous and interactive and inviting to students. I think everyone's going to enjoy the new Tally Student Center. The Women's Center does a lot around interpersonal violence issues and providing crisis support as well as uh, prevention education programming around interpersonal violence issues. And by that, I mean sexual assault, relationship violence, and stalking. We teach a three-credit-hour class for students that want to learn more about these issues and then become peer educators to go out and do presentations and educate others on campus about these issues. They'll go into residence halls, to student organizations, classrooms, and do general programming on campus as well to help raise awareness and to change the culture on campus to one that no longer supports and condones violence against women. If you'd like to schedule a workshop by the Movement Peer Educators, you can visit their website at ncsu.edu slash themovement or call the Women's Center at 919-515-2012. We'll be glad to set up a workshop for you. We have a variety of programs ranging from Women's Leadership Development, the um, WILD Conference, Women in Leadership Development Conference, is going to be on Saturday, November 20th. Uh, at Wake Tech Community College, so look for registration opportunities for that soon. September 21st, we're collaborating with Multicultural Student Affairs to bring in a speaker named Pagin Eshavadia, and she is a funny animated speaker who works on leadership development and helping students to reach their highest potential. We have the Chocolate Festival, of course, on Wednesday, October 13th from 1 to 4 p.m. Tickets are on sale now for this event, which is a breast cancer awareness and fundraiser event. The ballroom is filled with chocolate, so if you like chocolate, definitely check that out. We invite you to get involved with the Women's Center. Our calendar of events is available on our website at ncsu.edu slash womens underscore center a range of programs. You can sign up for our listserv to get weekly reminders about our upcoming events and see what's going on. This invitation goes out to men and women. Gender issues are not just women's issues. Everyone needs to get involved and they affect everyone. Sadly, I'll be leaving NC State University on September 15th and moving to central New York to join my partner who received a wonderful job opportunity in that area As an alumna of NC State, I did my undergraduate work here, but I'm also completing my doctorate in higher education administration. So I do hope to stay in higher education, doing something different in that area. We'll see where where life takes me. But the Wolfpack will always be with me. I bleed Wolfpack red, and so it will always be family and will stay in my heart wherever I go.
5: This has been Wolfpacker of the Week on Eye on the Triangle. From the sidelines on Eye
7: on the Triangle.
0: Your weekly update on athletic events.
7: Hi, I'm Tyler Everett with Technician. I'm joined today by Taylor Barber. Also with Technician, we're going to discuss Wolfpack football a little bit, how they did against Central Florida. We're going to handicap the Cincinnati game Thursday night on ESPN. I know everyone's excited about that. And we'll also wrap up the show talking a little bit of Carolina Panthers football. Uh, Taylor, tell me what you saw Saturday night with the Pack against Central Florida. Well, it was a huge win for the NC State
8: Wolfpack as they took down the Central Florida Golden Knights 28-21, and, it all, and they are now off to their first 2-0 start since 2002. And the, bi- I mean, the best start Tom O'Brien's had since he's been here. I mean, the team looked great, and the biggest thing that
7: I saw was that defense. That defense looked good blitzing, didn't it, Tyler? It looked great, making plays, flying around, taking the ball away, something it did very little of last year. The two biggest problems with that defense last year, there were several problems, but the two that stuck out, two that allowed other teams to score over 30 points a game were struggles on third down and struggles taking the ball away. The Pack did both of those Saturday night, led by Audie Cole. I think he had 12 tackles, a sack, a tackle, and a half for loss, and a huge pick. A great diving play. It looked like the guy was throwing the ball away on a trick play, reverse pass. Cole uh, snared that ball out of nowhere. Um, great to see a diving athletic play like that from somebody his size. He was just one of several guys that made a, made big plays. Earl Wolf had a big pick early. C.J. Wilson, what ended up being the difference in the game—a seven-point game. The last score for the Pack was his uh, interception and run back for a touchdown. First time Pack had scored a defensive touchdown since Nate Irving did so against Clemson early 2008. So a lot of uh, positive welcome things by the defense that Wolfpack fans hadn't seen in a while
8: yeah and the biggest thing I think is some of that blitzing man I mean have you ever we've never seen at least since I've been here which is three years three long years of football seasons we've always seen us just sit back on our heels play that little 20 yard cover just little cushion and just get drilled and I mean it was the other way around they
7: pushed them around Saturday night the pressure was there I don't know how many sacks we totaled but you know, a, a good couple, maybe a handful of sacks, and then even when there weren't sacks, there was a lot of pressure. Even that last drive when the uh, – When Nate whipped three Florida, times. <laughs> yeah, Nate Irving came in on the blitz a little too quickly, uh, lost contain on the quarterback. But even then, you know, the quarterback's running for his life. That's what he wanted to do because he's a mobile mm-hmm. quarterback. But still, you know, welcome sight to see a quarterback scrambling, having to make it up as he goes, as opposed to hanging out uh, – Taking his time in the pocket and and picking between open receivers down the field.
8: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely showed. Tanuta's made a huge impact on this off or this defense already. And I mean, I like the way they're going. But I think also a huge thing was that we won a game without. Superstar Superman, do everything, Russell Wilson actually playing a, it that good of a game, I mean he yeah. was I think ten for thirty with a hundred and five yards, yards which is I about. mean in russell wilson 's numbers i mean that 's a bad game, but we won the game, we controlled the ball, we didn 't turn it over the running game, Mustafa Green and Dean Haynes look better they con- and I think they 're going to continue to get better just as more as they play. I mean they combined for forever a hundred yards, each scored a touchdown and we really we controlled the ball. We controlled the clock. I mean, especially that first half. It was all NC State, except for that one fluke ninety that kick return. I mean, all Got NC State on both sides up, uh, of the a ball. A lot of
7: games that's going to doom you, giving up a, a kick return for a touchdown like that. But like Taylor said, uh, a dominant first half, at least in the sense of of ball possession and time. I mean, time of possession. How how long State held the ball versus how long Central Florida had the ball. Uh, can't harp on it enough. You know, you say, well, State can beat anybody if Russell's on. The fact that they won on a game, I mean, he wasn't atrocious. He made a couple throws here and there for sure. Hit Daryl Davis for a touchdown, but statistically, ten of thirty for 105 yards—that's as bad as Russell's going to play. And to win a game on the road against a good UCF team, UCF isn't a household name. They're probably not. I mean, they're not going to win the national championship. They're not going to be a team. They're going to give ESPN Conference
8: USA year. a run though. For, they're going to give ECU. Yeah. They're going to be one of the better teams in Conference USA. But um, I mean, as we move away from that game, two and and0 and short week, uh, O'Brien wasn't very happy. He said it. Um, I think he quoted he. Said the ACC, I mean, put them in almost a no-win situation, having them have to turn around this quickly after a road game in Florida and come all the way back, practice quickly, and then play that Thursday nighter against Cincinnati. It's gonna be a big game.
7: It's gonna be a huge game. Cincinnati's uh, won the Big East last year, made it to BCS play. They lost a lot of their talent. They lost their head coach Brian Kelly who left the Bearcats for Notre Dame. They lost Tony Pike, the star quarterback, but their backup quarterback. Played like an all-star when he was in last year, and he's back. Zach Caleros, uh, if the struggles against Central Florida, when they brought in their mobile quarterback were any indication, uh, the defense will certainly have its hands full. I won't say they're going to struggle after how they played. I I don't see them – I don't see it being a rough game for them, but they'll certainly have their work cut out for it. Zach Caleros can run around. He can make throws. It'll be a great challenge for those guys – to make it back-to-back. To, back to, It's a chance for them to make it back-to-back back weeks playing well on the defensive side of the ball.
8: Yeah, definitely. I and mean, Caleros is going to be a struggle. He's their leading rusher. I think he's got at least... Uh, he's got double the amount of carries their running back has. And... Godfrey, Godfrey, uh, quarterback Jeff Godfrey for UCF, kind of came in when he came in and gave the pack defense a little scare. I think that's just a little overcommitment I think, I think a few he, times. But if we can settle down and contain Caleros, we have just as good a shot as anything because uh, R- Wilson's not going to be what he was I, that last game. I think he's going to come out. He's going to throw the ball around. And then him throwing that ball around shows. I mean, it opens up that running game a lot. And these two freshman running
7: backs, I mean, they look good. It does, and going back to the defense real quick, I think a lot of the reasons they had problems with the Central Florida quarterback is that's not who they prepared for. Mm-hmm. Uh, Central Florida hit State with that player. I think midway or late in the third quarter, mm-hmm. they they'd been playing a different type of quarterback all game. That wasn't what they practiced. For yeah, always. pocket Somebody pocket doing that. quarterback. All this the week, way. the scout team quarterback is going to be running around. They're going to be ready for it. They're not going to come out Thursday night and be surprised that a mobile quarterback is getting Mm -hmm. outside the pocket on them. So I think they've got somewhat of an advantage in that regard in that they'll be prepared. They know a running quarterback is coming. Mm -hmm. And offensively, you know, with two freshmen in the backfield, you think you go down to Florida against a good team on the road, their first game against a real big opponent. Sorry, Western Carolina. This was Mustafa Green and Dean Haynes' first action against quality opponents. And their quarterback really didn't have it that night. And State won anyway. And they performed. You think, you know, okay, we're at home. Crowd's going to be going nuts. Thursday night ESPN. It's going to be rough on Cincinnati. you got to think Russell's going to play well. The crowd's going to help those freshmen. It's going to be quiet for them on offense. They'll be settled in. Um, it, if they could do that on the road in those circumstances, I think they could play even better at home. And, and with freshmen, week one to week two is a big jump. Week two to week three is a big jump. Every week you've got to anticipate them producing a whole lot more than they did the week before. So it's uh, certainly something to look forward to Thursday night to see that offense hopefully clicking on all cylinders this time. Mm
8: -hmm. Oh, yeah, and I think the the best thing about that is it's going to be Carter Finley's going to be rocking.
7: Yeah. Fans,
8: no I mean, students are excited. They've had huge numbers requesting tickets. They just released two thousand extra tickets for students, not sitting in the original student section, but extra tickets they haven't sold. So this place is going to be rocking, and I think it's going to be just—it's
7: um, uh, going to be an electric atmosphere out there, and hopefully a sea of red. Yeah, it'll be the uh, hopefully it'll be the first win I've seen on a Thursday night my freshman year. State played Florida State, lost that one last year. South Carolina, another ESPN Thursday night game. We've been getting these Thursday night games, but haven't pulled through at victories. So it would be great to see State uh, come out of one of these ESPN nationally televised games on top. No doubt.
8: And then, I mean, just real quickly, why don't we move a little to the professional football? And if you're a Panthers fan, it was a rough, yeah, next rough subject, weekend. Right? Huh? Yeah, definitely next subject. But let's talk about it a little. Matt Moore did not look like a quarterback we've seen when he's come in late in the season in 2007 and last year.
7: A lot of people have have criticized Matt Moore before this season, and I've said you're wrong. He's a good quarterback every time he's been in; he's played well. And before Sunday, that was true. That was not the case Sunday. He missed some open receivers. His line didn't help him out. We, you know, you think of the Panthers as having a great line. Their pass protection wasn't what it should have been. He certainly got his head beat in there a little bit, especially second half. But there were some open throws he missed. Yeah. The I'm, only the only drive he looked good on was the 32nd uh, march down the field to get Steve right Smith at halftime.
8: Yeah, but I mean, you can't throw. Three interceptions in the red zone, especially in like the fourth quarter. That's going mean, to kill you. Every he's time. lobbing the ball up. Not all all passes seem forced, and something that I don't even think he should. I mean, he needs to learn to throw those balls away. But I mean, one thing is the the running game didn't help him at all. I mean, no. it was awful. They were flat out awful. I don't understand some of the play calling. Like they got. With, on the five-yard line late in the fourth quarter on that first drive, and they pass, pass, pass. The third one ends up being an interception. We have what could be some – I mean, we have the two best I think we've combo got the best running backs. back
7: and best running attack in the league if the offense if the offense can pass enough to keep defenses honest, I think this is as good a running attack as anywhere in the league. Between the offensive line the fact that you've got two backs that are just as good, slightly different styles, but both versatile, both great backs and a good young line, it's really tough to see them struggle. You expect the passing game to struggle. Mm-hmm. You don't expect the running game to struggle, But and I feel like I'm harping on the passing game here, but I think part of the reason the running game struggled was because the Giants knew mm-hmm. more couldn't keep them honest. You bring eight or nine guys in the box. Carolina's ran on teams eight or nine in the past, but that's not going to happen many weeks mm-hmm. with any kind of respectable defense on the other and side. Like they the, know you're running, they're mm-hmm. going to stop it, and that's what happened early. And then you know you get down, you can't run the ball anymore because you've got to get quick scores. Mm-hmm. Then they know you're passing, and, and red zone turnovers will kill you every single time. And that's that's that was the story Sunday. Carolina was actually up at the half, but in the second half, Seven, outscored know, seventeen two. And uh, it was yep.
8: yeah, it was just it was rough. And I agree, and, and I mean you're you're right. I mean it's you're especially not going to be able to run the ball when they're putting eight or nine in the box against the Giants that have the front four that they do. Yeah, and I mean. I mean, Moore got out. Hopefully they're saying he'll play and he is the starter, which he should be. There should be zero quarterback controversy right now. Matt Moore is still the starter. Jimmy Clausen is nowhere close to being ready, I don't think. I think he's still – I don't think he should even play the rest of the season unless, I mean, it com- he shows some drastic improvement. I think it's just the game's going to be coming a little too fast for him at this point. And I think the team has confidence in Moore. I think yeah. they all believe in him. They believe he is their leader. And I think, I mean, people are going to say, let's let's give Clausen a shot. We drafted him, all this. But the team, which is the most important thing, it doesn't matter what we say, it doesn't matter what the fans say – The team still believes in more, and I think they are. And I I think they're going to have, I mean, it's a rough first game, but hopefully they got Tampa Bay at home this weekend. So hopefully we'll see a win on that one.
7: One positive I did see in the Meadowlands Sunday was the defense's performance. It it gave up some plays through the air, but a lot of those were in the second half when it seemed like the Giants had the ball the whole time with turnovers. You know, the defense couldn't get rested. That first half, you know, there's some no-names on that defensive line, but those guys are swarming. Mm -hmm. They never let the Giants' running game get going. They harassed Eli a decent bit. The secondary uh, had at least one or two picks. Mm -hmm. Could have had a a couple more. Had their hands on several balls they didn't pick, which those are good plays. They could have been great plays. You take the ball away, we need it. Um, Another thing is Carolina should have scored a lot more points this week. And the defense, the average field position in the first half, between the kicking game, Mike Goodson had several good returns, and the defense, this offense had no shortage of, of favorable situations where they started their drives and just went nowhere with it. Casey kicked three field goals in the first half and there was that uh turnover on one of the one of the early drives that Moore threw in the back of the end zone. You know, you think those field goals need to become touchdowns and those trips inside the five need to become touchdowns, especially with the running game with guys like Stewart and, and D'Angelo back there. But until that passing game opens it up, that it's gonna be tough sledding in the running game. So Moore's gonna have to make just enough plays to keep seven in the box because when you line up one on one with this offensive line, these backs, I think they're gonna run run rough shot, but they're not when they're running into, you know, more defenders than the line and the fullbacks and tight ends can block. Yeah,
8: definitely, definitely. But I think this is all for us this week. Uh, this is Taylor and Tyler signing off for uh, Sports on I Eye of the Triangle.
5: WKNC 88.1. Thank you, Tyler and Taylor, for that roundup of sports. We're going to move right along now and move on to my favorite part of the show, the Gardening Minute, where this week we'll be discussing the fun and exciting world of composting. Yay. Composting can be an easy way to create delicious and nutritious soil for your garden or yard. It is also a great way to reduce the amount of waste you send to the landfill. The soil that you produce in your compost creates optimal growing conditions for your plants, and the compost you produce on your own is much cheaper than getting it from a local garden center or from the city of Raleigh. Compost can improve soil health by making clay soil more porous or improve sandy soil's ability to hold moisture. Creating your own compost bin can be a very simple process. While some people spend up to $200 on a compost bin from the store, a compost bin can easily be created in no time at all. In essence, compost is simply a pile of organic matter exposed to oxygen and sunlight that breaks down into soil. To create my compost bin, I made a circular shape out of electric er, out of chicken wire and stabilized it with sticks. Compost bins can also be created out of wood in a range of shapes and sizes. Compost bins can be created out of things like trash cans or recycling bins as well. If you plan on making a bin out of an old recycling trash can or recycling bin, make sure that holes are cut in the sides to ensure proper airflow as the compost breaks down. Once the location of the bin has been decided and the bin has been created, you must keep track of the ingredients you add to your compost. Many organic ingredients are okay. For instance, coffee grounds and filters, fruits and vegetables, eggshells, grass clippings, leaves, and fireplace ashes are all things that can be added to your compost. However, try and stay away from things like meat or fish bones, yard trimmings that have been treated with chemicals, pet waste, and plants that are diseased. By following these simple guidelines, even you can reduce the amount of waste you create. By keeping a container by the sink or trash can, you can temporarily store food waste so you don't have to run out of the bin every time you have new scraps. Keeping track of what you add to your compost and making sure you add only the best ingredients will ensure a wonderfully healthy soil, which will optimize your harvest in the coming year. For this week's Gardening Minute, I'm Chris Chaffee.
1: Soundbites on Eye on the Triangle.
2: Opinions from around NC State and the rest of the triangle.
5: This week on SoundBites, I was on the beat at the first annual Hopscotch Music Festival, trying to get the skinny on how people were feeling about the exciting new addition to Raleigh's music scene. David Ranny, now can you tell me a little about your experience here at Hopscotch
4: Night? It's been great. It's been uh, three nights of just uh, a ton of awesome music. Days too, been <laughs> doing the whole thing. So many good local bands. It's uh, I think been uh, my favorite part of it, and um, of course the the national acts too. have been uh, really happy to see, but uh, just been having a great time. Now, have you, who have you caught so far tonight? Oh, man, I wish I had a list. Um, I uh, was downtown, and I saw Black Skies at uh, the Man's World Party and uh, woke up late, so we didn't see much before that. And then, um, of course, went down to the City Plaza and uh, saw Love Language, favorite local band, um, Caught No Age, and a little bit of uh, Public Enemy before I had to jam down here and see my friends in uh, Motor Skills, which is awesome. And uh, so we just saw that, and uh, now we're going to see Light Pines and... Uh, uh, one wavelos and just so much good stuff
2: Hi. My name is Jackie Willis. I am from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. My hopscotch experience was really, really great because I got to see a lot of cool bands that I wanted to see, and I was working and hanging out with everyone that I wanted to hang out with. I'm also interested in getting into like the logistics of planning festivals and stuff. I'm having like the experience and knowing what people are saying. Like, if there are any like issues or anything, like I can kind of see behind the scenes in the planning of like music festivals.
5: What have you seen that you don't think people that just came to the concerts like you did the other night and see
2: people that come they come and they see like the food stands are on the side, you got your main things, and you just want to see the bands and uh, have the experience by yourself, whereas if you're working and volunteering, you notice the simple things, like you notice the planners like running around, being serious and kind of looking like they're pissed off at the world, when you know like in the end like it's all going to like um, pay off, but it's all really fun. You see people that are upset sometimes, maybe because they can't get in through a certain entrance, but you got to like, turn them down or something, but overall though, like everyone's really happy. Everyone's was really good. The festival is very successful because there's just like great aspects besides just the music and the food. It was a great scene in the city plaza.
9: John
5: Gomes. And can you tell me a little about your Hopscotch experience? The Hopscotch experience so far has been fantastic. Just getting all these bands coming here to Raleigh at the same time. And I must say that the best experience so far has been Broken Social Scene last night. uh, That was a life-changing concert for me. I've waited several years to see them and didn't think they would reunite. But they did, and they came to Raleigh, and they put on an amazing show. So I feel very fortunate to have seen them. Now, can you tell me, like, what is the one thing about Hopscotch that you didn't think you were going to have, but was so great? I think just how easy it was to go from one venue to another. It's all within walking distance, and it feels like any other music festival where you can just go up to a stage and see any band that you wish. It's almost terrible because you have to choose between bands, but at the same time, you can see anyone you want to, pretty much.
7: I'm Nick Jager, and I play in a band called the Tomahawks.
5: can you tell me a little about your hopscotch experience this time around? Man, my hopscotch experience has been awesome. Saw some amazing bands. Having an artist
7: wristband has been amazing. It's gotten me into everything that I wanted to see. And uh, the Tomahawks just played over on the street. We just beat the rain and rocked it.
5: It was fun. It's been awesome. How do you feel the rain has affected the final day of hopscotch? Or do you feel it has?
7: It hasn't really affected my experience yet. I feel like since the rain was pretty much perfectly timed to like when the festival went into the clubs the rain
5: started so it's like now everybody can be inside and i think public enemy probably finished their set in a little bit of a downpour but you know it's probably fine what's the, the best thing about hopscotch so far
7: maybe all the free beer <laughs> my name is kent thomas and all i have to say about hopscotch is that from beginning to end the stars of this whole festival have been the venues and it's been Nothing short of stellar. It's been
5: very awesome. Reporting live from Hopscotch 2010, this has been Chris Chaffee
1: for Eye on the Triangle. Thank you, Chris. We just uh, we are just flying through the hour here on On the Triangle. The time is now seven fifty seven. We join our resident restaurant reviewer, Mark Herring. But first, of course, the disclaimer: the opinions expressed are those of the author, not WKNC student media or NCSU. The author was not paid or otherwise compensated for his review. WKNC does not endorse any specific establishment it reviews and takes no responsibility for what you do with the information therein.
9: Thank you, John. Thank you. The Triangle is one of the most rapidly growing regions in the nation, and along with the population increase has come a great growth in the Triangle Foods' food culture. New and innovative restaurants are quickly opening up, tough chefs are dabbling with casual and inexpensive menus, and great microbreweries are popping up left and right. However, the Triangle is falling short on a crucial factor that separates it from cultural and culinary centers of the world, good street food. I'm still perplexed on why the United States does not have half-decent street food. Nearly every other country around the world, especially developing countries, have really cheap, quick, and tasty dishes sold by local vendors. Perhaps the profuse amount of McFreedom Fries joints have thwarted any chance for foodies like me to get their fix on good street food. However, a select group of heroic individuals are trying to make a change in local street food culture in in North Carolina. And they're doing it successfully and deliciously, and most importantly, with style. Back to my main point. I recently, happened, I recently happened upon Mom's Delicious Dishes, a nascent food truck that serves up comfort food for great prices. Started by Ardeth Church and Bake, Mom's Delicious Dishes food truck is their spin on comfort food with a street food twist. Instead of the generic burger, they serve a meatloaf sandwich, which is ground meat and sausage. They will beat a quarter pounder any time and will make you nostalgic about your childhood as well. Also, they always have daily specials. So this afternoon, for instance, they had a ham and brie cheese san- sandwich panini. Last weekend, they did a special on pulled pork. I asked the ladies why they went into the street f- street food business, and they responded saying that it's less constraining than a traditional restaurant. For instance, they have an Asian barbecue chicken sandwich, potato salad, and a grilled curry chicken salad sandwich, all on the same menu. It would be fine to, It would be hard to find that in any other restaurant. Moreover, what they want most is something that tastes good, and that's working out pretty well. Only three months into the business, Tao and Ardith have established themselves on Centennial Campus twice a week, which happens to be their busiest spot. They expressed a lot of interest in coming closer to the main NC State campus, and I'm considering dropping my meal plan if that's the case. However... The one sad thing about Mom's Delicious Dishes is that it's an anomaly in our food food culture. Unfortunately for many people, it takes a bit of audacity to deviate from the McChicken Nugget feeding trough. However, there's no need to fear Mom's Delicious Dishes. The food truck is immaculate, and the ingredients they use are fresh. And now let me make my little manifesto here about the word fresh. Mom's Delicious Dishes actually does fresh. It's not some cheesy mantra. If the tomatoes look good today... They'll use more tomatoes. If there's fresh cantaloupe in the market, the fruit salad will have cantaloupe. The women go to the farmer's market every morning and pick out local vegetables, and much of the meat they serve is organic, and they still phenomenally find a way to keep everything pretty much under 7 bucks, which ironically equates to the the individual value of one meal plan. If you're interested in checking them out, you can find Mom's Delicious Dishes on Facebook and Twitter,
1: where they post their hours, locations, and
9: specials. Thanks, and bon appetit.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Look forward to hearing more from you in the coming weeks. Uh, Well, this hour is done for us. I really thought we would have some time to discuss some of the bed bug material. We have more of it, and we'll certainly get your comments in next week. Uh, We will be. Back here next week, we'll hopefully broadcast live from a Shackathon to take a look at SparkCon, campus events, results from the Cincinnati game with Tyler and Taylor, and much, much more. Do you have any questions, comments, suggestions, story ideas, Mm. complaints, issues, somebody you'd like to nominate for Wolfpacker of the Week? Well, that's what we're here for. Keep in touch with Eye on the Triangle on Twitter, WKNCEOT, or WKNC881, Facebook, Public Affairs, at WKNC.org, or our voicemail feedback line, which is 919-628-0869. 919-628-0869. Nine one nine six two eight zero eight six nine. Big thanks to our guests tonight, Dr. Warren Booth, Rick Santangelo, and Dr. Shannon Johnson. For Chris Chaffee, Jessica Showers, Mark Herring, Jacob Downey, Tyler Everett, Taylor Barber, Tom Anderson, Seja Hindi, and Evan Garris, who is bound and locked in the back of a sketchy ice cream truck speeding through the dark streets of Brooklyn, and me, your host, John Boyer. Have a great night. Join us next time for more Eye on the Triangle. Stay tuned for After Hours.